going to be a big day for endorsements in the Cleveland mayor's race. The day after the second of two debates at the City Club, two topics we'll be talking about on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Jane Cahoon and our chief politics writer, Seth Richardson. It's getting hot in the city for the mayor's race, huh? Yeah, just a little bit. It, uh, I think we're going to really see some action over the uh, you know, coming weeks before September 14th. We're already kind of seeing it, frankly. Yeah, it's on fire. So let's get to it. What are the two big endorsements coming today in the Cleveland mayor's race and how might they affect that race? Seth Richardson, I'm stunned by one of these. I did not expect it and it could make a difference. Well, I'll start with the one that you're probably stunned by, and that is former Mayor Mike White is going to be endorsing nonprofit executive Justin Bibb, uh, you know, at a, at a press conference today. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a pretty big get for uh, Bibb, all things considered. You know, he his the main knock against him from his opponents has been his you know lack of experience and whatnot. And here you have a guy who you know still has a you know pretty pretty big base of support, I would assume. Uh, and who was mayor for three terms and is coming coming out and saying, hey, you know, this is this is the guy who I want. And, uh, you know, this is the guy you can trust going forward. You know, it, what what I don't think a lot of people realize when Mike White left office 20 years ago, uh, he was well known to have gone down to his farm down down in the new Philadelphia area. But what people I don't think realize is he's in Cleveland regularly. Um, he's met with, uh, you know, neighborhood activists trying to help. Uh, and give them the knowledge that he he gathered through all his years in public service to try and build the next generation. One of the people that he's met with over the years is Justin Bibb. Uh, so, so it's not like he just disappeared. He's he's not on the public stage, but he's been very much behind the scenes. He said he he's always said he cares deeply about Cleveland and he's continued to invest in it. Um, he, people have seen him at breakfast plenty of times. He's, he's not been invisible. Th- this is interesting when it does, you know, our columnist Brent Larkin had a, had an odd line in the, his column over the weekend saying the comparisons of Justin Bibb to Mike White are, are not appropriate. I have a feeling Mike White's going to come out and say, actually it is appropriate because he's been, he's been working it. He's been in the street. He's been talking to people and that's what the next Cleveland mayor needs to do. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what kind of credibility this gives Justin after uh, people have been questioning his age. I mean, we, the editorial board at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer made a very strong endorsement of Justin Bibb, point that out. Uh, to have Mike White now come out and endorse him, I just, I can't imagine that there aren't people on the east side of Cleveland that will not instantly say, okay, this is credible. In some ways, Seth, I think this is a far more important endorsement than Frank Jackson's endorsement of Kevin Kelly. Yeah, it's it's a little difficult to kind of, you know, determine which is more important, but it certainly seems like it at least has the ability to, um, you know, at the at the very base level kind of offset some of the support. Right. Because I, th- I think they probably got similar bases of support where they're still popular. But I think one big thing that, you know, the white endorsement might help bid with is um, what you could kind of call the. Um, you know, like a nostalgia factor, right? Uh, Frank Jackson has been around for, you know, 16 years. He's fresh in people's minds. You know, um, while while White, you know, had his shortcomings, of course, you can all, you know, people always do like to look back fondly on, you know, some of their past leaders. Not always, but a lot of times we want to look fond- uh, back fondly on some of their past leaders. And I think that's where, you know, it, 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 
that, that could kind of edge out if this does if this race does become a referendum on you know Frank Jackson or the Jackson administration, uh, you know having having that white support and kind of being like, hey, you're, you know, remember all the good that I did, and if that really resonates with voters, I think that can really help uh, Bib over on the east side there. Well, the other thing that Mike White has or had, I, I imagine he still has, very effective communicators. So coming out of his endorsement, I expect there'll be some powerful sound bites that then Justin Bibb can can use. It's a it's a big get for Justin Bibb to have Mike White. I don't think Mike White has endorsed any candidate for mayor since he left office. This so I, I could be wrong. I you know you'd have to go back and look. But for him to come out now, 20 years later, and say, this is the guy for the future of Cleveland, that's going to resonate with some, I think, especially older voters on the east side. Now, we have another endorsement coming out that's kind of going in the opposite direction. It's almost emphasizing ancient history. Which one is that? That would be uh, Dennis Kucinich is going to be rolling out Mary Rose Okor's statement. She's a former congresswoman, uh, you know, hadn't held office since 2002, but, you know, been serving in uh you know, the State Board of Education. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of fail to see how that one is going to move the needle um, near as much as a Mike White endorsement is going to. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of wonder how many people are even still really familiar with her. Um, so yeah, it, I, I don't know. I, I question the, uh, the, the value of that one. I, I yeah right the the voters that might be moved by Mary Rose Okar probably already were voting for Dennis Kucinich and what it does is kind of emphasize that he is very much a blast from the past that I mean because Mary Rose Okar goes back as far as he does uh, it's different than Justin Bibb the young guy getting some bona fides from somebody from the past what Dennis Kucinich needs is somebody younger to yeah, I was, just, I was yeah, just gonna say go that with, yeah go with this guy so <laughs> I, I just I don't think it helps him as much and it really does the fact that these both happen today are a pretty stark contrast interesting stuff you're listening to this week in the CLE how rich are the Republican candidates for the U.S. Senate in Ohio Jane Cahoon, they're loaded. <laughs> yeah, they're a lot richer than you or me, Chris. Let's put it that way. All three of the Republicans who filed financial disclosures this week are millionaires. And those three are Ohio, former Ohio Treasurer Josh Mandel, former Ohio Republican Party Chairman Jane Timken, and Cleveland luxury car dealer Bernie Marino. Uh, their wealth, wealth just dwarfs that of Congressman Tim Ryan, the major Democrat in the race, who who, as it turns out, actually owes more money than he has in financial assets because of his home mortgage and some other loans. But now here's where I should also note that two other prominent Republicans in this race didn't file disclosures. I think it's safe to speculate there's a lot more money out there because one of them is investment banker Mike Gibbons, who's funding his campaign through a $5.7 million personal loan. He missed the deadline because his lawyer says he has unusually complex finances to disclose, including hundreds of properties and several stock uh, portfolios. And then we have author J.D. Vance, who, as we know, is a venture capitalist. He didn't have to file because he just got in in July and he doesn't have to file anything until September. But anyway, I wanted to go off on that little tangent to to let you know that these probably aren't the only millionaires we're talking about. But um, 
let's let's give just a couple examples. We'll start with Timken. The vast majority of her assets are owned by her husband, Tim Timken, whose family founded Timken Steel and other prominent manufacturing businesses. But her disclosure was just voluminous. Andrew Tobias was pouring over like 65 some pages, you know, detailing hundreds of holdings in cash and stocks and bonds. And um, her her assets ranged in value from about $40 million to about $72 million. Of that, uh, 2.2 to 5.2 million were, were held by her personally. Um, so, and then we've got Marino, who listed assets worth 20.3 million to 93.1 million. There's a big range here because they they list each asset like in a range. So you know, um, but he's got, you know, commercial real estate developments. He's got uh, a, a home in the Bahamas worth $5 million to $25 million. And uh, he and his wife have condos in Washington, New York City, and Columbus. And he's right. got, uh, you know. Right. So, so, so let me interrupt you here. So say we're in next year and Tim Ryan is running against one of these folks. I, I would think that he would want to use this because the, the Republicans made inroads in the southern part of Ohio where people are largely poor. They they are upside down like Tim Ryan is. And if he if he's an effective communicator and that remains to be seen, you would think he could go to them and say, do you want somebody that is filthy, stinking rich making decisions about your future? Or do you want somebody that's trying to make ends meet like I am to be the one doing the future. I, I would think that he could use this situation because it's so stark to, <laughs> to make that personal tie with the voters who have switched over to Republican side. Well, when Andrew reached out to his campaign, they already took the opportunity to say, unlike his multimillionaire opponents, Tim comes from a working class family in a working class community. He understands the rising costs of raising a family in America. And that's, you know, that's the attitude he's going to take to the U.S. Senate. Now, I should also say the other three also took great pains to say, you know, to talk about some of their humble beginnings, you know, like Mandel's grandfather working in a factory and his mother working yeah, in a drugstore yeah, yeah. and Bernie Moreno emigrating from Colombia and building his business from the ground up and, and, uh, you know, Tim can, you know, scrubbing bathrooms or whatever, you know, I mean, um, I so know. Josh but, Mandel is making his money today because he got appointed to a bunch of corporate. Yeah, boards. he's that's, not really yeah. rolling up your sleeves. Bernie Moreno has a real story to tell. I mean, he was down to his last nickels when uh, when he started to build that fortune. That's a real story. Um, I just I think that that this could resonate. I mean, normally mm -hmm. these financial disclosures, they're interesting, but there's such a stark contrast between the Democrat and the Republican. Yeah, these were really, the details in this were just really, yeah, really interesting. Well, and it you, also takes away an attack line. Seth Richardson. Or, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, it, it, it also takes away an attack line that you often hear in campaigns where, you know, uh, there will often be attacks against people in office. They'll say, oh, they went to Congress and got rich. And I mean, that's pretty clearly not the case with Tim Ryan. So I, I think he can make a feasible case that, hey, I've been I've been there doing the work, not there to get rich, that kind of line. And I, yeah, I, I think that could yeah. work in his favor. I, it's, Good point. I, it's, gonna, it's going to be very interesting. This, this opens a new window into that race. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
Who won? Who lost? Who stayed even in the second Cleveland mayoral debate sponsored by the City Club and Idea Stream? Seth Richardson, I have to admit, I didn't watch. The first one was so uneventful and stilted that I just didn't want to use my limited time to do it. But it's your job to do it, so you can talk <laughs> about what happened. Yeah, you know, again, it was it was a little dry, but uh, and I, I I think that most of the candidates, you know, did basically what they needed to. I, I don't know that there's necessarily going to be a huge uh, moving of the needle, uh, so to speak, for anyone. No one fell flat on their face or anything like that. And I don't think anyone kind of blew anyone away either. Uh, you know, the one sort of performance uh, uh, that stood out to me last night was uh, I thought Bashir Jones did a lot better than he did in the first debate. Uh, you know, in the first debate, he really kind of just seemed to, you know, like fade into the background is how I put it in the story. You know, and, 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 you know, we both heard him speak multiple times and, you know, he's, he's great at oration, right? He's, he's very good at that. And uh, that didn't really come through the first time. I think last night he, uh, he showed a little more fire, showed, you know, that, you know, that he was hungry. Um, now that also came back to bite him a little bit when, um, you know, he decided to attack Zach Reed and, you know, say Reed hadn't done anything during his time in office and Reed came, you know, pretty prepared for that. He had a list of what he considered to be his accomplishments in office and then, uh, you know, struck Bashir for uh, basically saying, well, hey, maybe you should spend more time showing up to your Zoom council meetings instead of, you know, trying to attack my record. Um, let, let, let me ask you, though, I read in your story that he he did a better job being present. But the knock on him has been that the more he speaks, the more you realize he doesn't have any real plans and there's not any substance to his campaign. He's a great talker without without any evidence that he he's done the work or would do the work. Did you see any evidence that there's substance or was it just he did a better job speaking? Well, he did a good job of sort of tying back what he saw successes in his ward during his first term in office. Now, as, as far as like any kind of, uh, you know, necessarily tangible plan or anything that, you know, I don't I don't think that that was necessarily there. But I do think that he probably did a fairly good job of kind of connecting with people who were watching and really saying, you know, he really point like tried to point out, hey, I've done the work, which has been a you know campaign point of his. And I, I do think that can that could be effective going forward, where he really kind of connects with voters. He also had a pretty good line about you know being a younger candidate in the race, and you know saying, "Hey, this old guard, you know they're not going to give you anything. You know you got to take it, you got to stand up, and kind of having that call to action." And I, I do think that that could uh, potentially be a boon for him. All right, and then uh, how did the Dennis Kucinich, Kevin Kelly squaring off go? That was a feature in the first debate. Did that happen again? You know, a little bit. It was it, it was actually a little more uh, focused from all of the candidates on Kevin Kelly. I think that's probably an indication of sort of where the dynamics are at in this race right now. Um, you know, with Kevin being the money leader and uh, getting Jackson's endorsement and all of that. Um, you know, the the thing that really you know I kind of took away from that was there. There was a time where Reed attacked Kelly for his opposition to the $15 an hour minimum wage ballot initiative that was supposed to be on the ballot in 2017. You know, Kelly and other city leaders went to Columbus, basically got the legislature to pass a bill that says, hey, you know, cities can't pass their own minimum wage. The reasoning that they had for 
not wanting Cleveland to have its own, you know, separate minimum wages. They thought it would make the city less competitive when, you know, attracting business or uh, even just kind of, you know, starting business, small businesses. And, you know, he, you know, Kelly effectively kind of defended that position by pointing out Reed voted against, you know, the $15 uh, minimum wage as well. Uh, but, you know, some of the other candidates also piled on, and I think it's kind of indicative of where Kelly's weaknesses might lie in this race. And that is if he is too closely tied to the current administration, the current kind of power structure in city hall and in city government. And if people are upset with the way things are going and they do want, you know, some kind of change there, I, I could see that being a hindrance to his campaign. Could I jump Why? in here? Uh, Jane Cahoon. <laughs> you asked about the the exchange between the two of them. Well, maybe this wasn't really an exchange between the two of them, but the issue of recycling came up, you know, about what they're going to do with the city's recycling program, et cetera. And Dennis Kucinich, he didn't use all of his time, but he he made this very like he looked directly into the camera and said, we can't recycle failed leadership or something like that. And then he just stared, gave, gave kind of a stare into the camera. And I, I've seen a lot of reaction to that on social media and so forth. It was kind of a, I mean, I think it was a jab at, at Kevin Kelly's leadership. And um, so the effectiveness of it, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't so know how much was, those... What was Zach Reed thinking by bringing up the, the coming endorsement of Mike White to Justin Bibb? I, I don't get why you would bring that up if you're not getting the endorsement. What, what, was the, what did you make of that? Well, I think he was trying to preempt a, a big news day for Bibb was probably kind of you know one of the uh, thoughts there. But I, I also think that it is kind of weird because it sort of draws attention to Bibb getting this endorsement on a bigger stage and you know might leave people at the end of that debate thinking not much about the debate, which I actually thought Zach did quite well during the debate last night. But if if that's the closing message, that's the last thing people hear, are people more focused on the debate or are they kind of wondering to themselves, oh man, Mike White's endorsing in this race? That's wild. So I, I think that was uh, probably a, a mistake on uh, on uh, Reed's part. But I, I, I'm guessing that, you know, he, he thinks that he's going to be able to kind of go with this sort of outsider uh, lane of sorts. And he's trying to tie Bib to, uh, you know, past leadership, what Reed has called, you know, failed leadership in the city for, you know, decades now. And um, I, I think he would add, I think he would consider both Frank Jackson and Mike White in that sort of. Um, Although uh, running as an out, outsider, when you spent 16 years in city hall, that, that's kind of a hard thing to do. I mean, Bashir Jones yeah. had a good point. Zach Reed, trots out things he accomplished. He accomplished very little. He barely ever rolled up his sleeves to do the work uh, and has been kind of surprising in, in what he tries to take credit for. Uh, but Bashir Jones does the same thing. Bashir Jones takes credit for the library and the rec center coming to his ward when really he doesn't have a whole lot to do with that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine have a coronavirus briefing Tuesday? Did he announce any new policies or mandates? Jan Kuhn, I am still sitting here trying to figure out what, what the point was. <laughs> he was all grave and serious, but he didn't really do anything. Yeah, I, I know you're not just asking this question to to spur discussion here. You really want to know what the point was. <laughs> so, it, First, I would uh, like to say here that you, you've got to give DeWine some credit for, for standing out among 
some other Republican governors in the country who, in the face of exploding, you know, coronavirus hospitalizations and deaths from this Delta variant, are doubling down on forbidding cities and counties and schools from requiring masks instead of letting them decide what's right for their communities. So he's not doing that. However, as you said, he's not issuing any mandates. So what is the point? I mean, he and Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, the health director, they talked in really grim and sober tones about the Delta variant and how it's going to pose a real threat to kids having a normal school year again. And he made it clear, DeWine did in no uncertain terms, that the best way for kids to be able to attend school is to get them vaccinated if they're 12 or older and otherwise have them wear masks. This did work last year as they were able to, you know, limit the virus spread for the most part in the classroom. So he he was really urging schools and, and he got on social media afterward too and urged schools to institute mask mandates, even temporary ones. And he said, if I was in a local school board, the way to protect those kids is clear. And But then when he was pressed by reporters about why he wasn't issuing a mandate himself, he just said, I think there's a real desire by the people of the state of Ohio to make their own decisions. I mean, uh, Seth, the, Seth and I okay. were talking about this. He got a lot of pushback on social media from people saying, you know, why don't you just mandate it? You right. That, and look, that, that's the thing. If you're going to get on television and look all serious and grim and talk about what a danger it is for kids to go to school without masks and call on other leaders to mandate masks, then you have a responsibility to mandate the masks. Don't don't stand up and, and be hypocritical and say it's not my place. It, you're the guy who who in the beginning of the pandemic did all sorts of things saying it's my job to keep the people of this state safe. So you get up yesterday and say this is this is incredibly important. We have to stop the spread of this virus. If I had a kid going to school, I'd make sure they're wearing a mask. And then he doesn't do it. And yes, the, the legislature has neutered him. They've taken away his power to make long term mandates. But he could have put in a 30 day mandate to start the school year. Every kid wears a mask. If he feels it's so important, do it. Otherwise, what's the point of the briefing? Well, the the elephant in the room here, too, is that he's up for reelection and, you know, that's got to be at play here. You know, he doesn't want to alienate uh, some in his party who, um, who have a then different why, view of this situation. Then why do the briefing at all? Why not just have the health department say we, you know, we advocate for masking? I, I just I think what it does by doing the briefing the way it does, it makes them look very weak. And, and that I just don't I don't understand that. I don't think anybody who's watching that is not thinking, well, if it's so important, why don't you just do it? Yeah. 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 You have a point. And only he can answer what his uh, calculus is there. And Seth Richardson, you said social media blew up with exactly that sentiment. Yeah, there was a there was a lot of that that was going on because, you know, people do. <laughs> I sat here, you know, I saw the tweet and kind of thought to myself, you know, of course, being the cynic I am. Well, if only there were some kind of, you know, state official who had the power to make this happen <laughs> in their purview. And a lot of other people felt that way as well. And, you know, go, like going back to what you said a little bit about how he was at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I part of me wonders if he's still kind of operating on that same playbook that he was in that first month where he was sort of broadcasting what he was going to do if people didn't do it. But if you think back to what happened at the, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, he still had to do all these things. So why still operate on that playbook? Um, I, I, I don't uh, know. It's, school, it's a bizarre look, move. 
school is opening. I mean, there are kids going to school today. Yeah. He could have mandated it. And instead, you know, and the school boards are under incredible pressure. You got the critical race theory nonsense going on. You got parents screaming, I don't want my kid to wear a mask, which is bizarre. And they're local officials that are trying to figure out what to do. And a lot of them are also have, you know, other states like he was citing other states like I think Florida and South Carolina, where these cases are already exploding in schools. And, you know, maybe he figures if he could just make a plea, he could avoid disaster. But I, you know, he has the power teeth. It's yeah. not. He could have said, look, I'm mandating the first 30 days. And after that, I'll leave it up to the schools. But I got to I got to protect the kids for the first 30 days because we don't know what's going to happen. It's the first time they're getting together like this with the variant. I, it, 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 it was kind of a shock. It's a very different Mike DeWine Ohioans are seeing now than at the beginning of the pandemic. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What national group connected to LeBron James gave a major boost Tuesday to the grassroots group seeking civilian control over Cleveland police discipline? Seth Richardson, I got to think this is going to make a difference. I I think it'll absolutely make a difference more than a vote, uh, which is a a national organization that, you know, is generally connected with, you know, the, the big superstars like LeBron James and other basketball players is coming in. And uh, they're going to support Citizens for a Safer Cleveland, that ballot initiative that would create the Citizens Review Board. Uh, they're going to you know, start out by doing a big digital campaign. And, you know, they've got a lot of reach. And I, I do think that that will really kind of boost the ballot initiative's chances just because, uh, you know, one, you'll be able to reach a volunteer base that, you, you know, the, the group itself running the initiative might not have been able to do. And two, it's probably going to help with, well, two, it's going to help with fundraising, I would imagine. And three, if they're going to you know, go out and put ads out on social media and YouTube and everything, that just creates a kind of virality about it that uh, you know, really has a chance to uh, connect with a lot of people. The, the, they've never done a local campaign. They're only a year old, so it's not saying never. I mean, they, they, in their year of operation, they've never focused so locally. I got to think that LeBron James being a local is one of the reasons that they're focused on the Cleveland initiative. I'd imagine there's some of that in there. He's been, you know, very vocal about, uh, you know, uh, police reform and criminal justice reform, you know, for really the past decade. So I have to imagine that he did play a part in it in uh, recommending, hey, maybe, uh, you know, take a look at this initiative in my hometown. And, you know, I, I, I do see, you know, this this sort of playbook for more than a vote and for the ballot initiative here possibly being kind of them trying to craft a broader playbook nationwide if they see it works here then uh they might see it as a chance to go into other cities and kind of you know help with or do the same reforms well i thought this was going to pass either way but i think it's going to pass big now when you get this kind of uh national presence in the campaign and some extra money it could make a difference we'll have to see you're listening to this week in the cle how does Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish propose to copy a coronavirus vaccine strategy of Ohio Governor Mike DeWine? Seth Richardson and Jane Cahoon, this is interesting. It's, it's, it's become the way of buying people into compliance. Seth, let's talk about what Budish is doing. And then, Jane, let's talk about how successful DeWine was when he did it. It's giveaways. It's always giveaways, right? Uh, you know, Armand <laughs> Budish is uh, considering, you know, you know 
giving $100 to county employees who have been vaccinated. That would apply to, uh, I believe, 75, yeah, 7,500, you know, plus county employees and would be retroactive. So anybody who has been vaccinated would also get that $100 as well. And, you know, I think you are going to see a lot, you know, more of this going forward in that kind of smaller scale. But, uh, you know, I, I do question how much it actually helps convince people. Let me let me let me let me ask you this. The absent Leila Atassi and I had a debate about this. I, I, I thought that paying people who already got it w- was preposterous because the whole goal here is to persuade people who haven't been vaccinated to get vaccinated. That's for the good of us all. The more people are vaccinated, the better for society. And she flat out disagreed with me, saying that's not fair. That means you're penalizing the people who already got the shot out of the goodness of their souls. And it's like, but it's not about that. It's about persuading people to get the shot. Jane Cahoon, Mike DeWine did the same thing and they ended up paying people who already got the shot. Right, right. right. I guess you're talking about a reward versus versus an incentive. That's all it comes down to. Uh, he did get, though, the the new ones. Um, I, I believe it was the Associated Press reported last week that uh, 800 employees and I think 200 of their spouses uh, stepped forward to get vaccinated. Uh, but the state has like 50,000 employees and we don't really know what the total, you know, what the percent of vaccinated is. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess he probably didn't want to alienate uh, all those people who, as you said, out of the goodness of their hearts or they, they did the right thing, you know, and, and got vaccinated. Yeah, I well, Layla felt that it would she would have been angry, and if she in our workplace we did that, we only paid the people who got it going forward. And I was thinking, but it would make a safer workplace. Who cares if the other people get the money? So clearly, <laughs> well, it was like Vaximilian too. Remember where um, if you you did have to opt into it, but you could sign up for that drawing even if you had already been vaccinated in the past. So and we all did. We and all none did, of, us of course. <laughs> All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Good discussion. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.